Hello and welcome to the Evergreen Way podcast, where we explore how to be a healthy leader for the long haul. My name is Andy Needham, and I get to serve on the team with Converge Northeast. And today we have truly a packed, extra special conversation to bring you. Before I get to that, real quickly, Evergreen One Day, a one-day gathering for leaders, June 21st, Avon, Connecticut. This is an intentionally unconferency day. It's really more like a series of masterclasses where we come together in very conversational-based classrooms and we get to explore the pillars of the Evergreen Way. This is a time that you will grow as a leader and you'll get to connect with some amazing people from the region. That's June 21st, Avon, Connecticut. Details are at convergenortheast.org, convergenortheast.org. I'd love to see you there. Today, we're going to dive into an amazing conversation with Barbara Campbell, and she's going to share her story. So I'm just going to jump right into the interview here because there is so much gold. I think you may want to listen to this episode more than once just to be able to get everything out of it. So here's my conversation with Barbara Campbell. Well, today I am honored to be joined by Barbara Campbell. Barbara, welcome to the Evergreen Way podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, Barbara, I've enjoyed getting to know you over the past few years as we have served together. Uh, We served for a a good season on the regional board for Converge Northeast. And before I was on the staff team with Converge, I served two terms uh, and some of that was alongside you. And uh, this has been a robust season of change and some milestones for, for Converge Northeast. And we've seen God really work to revitalize our network. And we've also had to lead through some hard things uh, and been blessed. A thing I like to say is we're facing better challenges now than we were facing before, which is is a good thing. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and others on the board. And sometimes I feel like I attend the overseer meetings, both attending to the business on the agenda, but also trying to learn from the great leaders that were sitting around, whether it was a Zoom call or the physical table. And so I've enjoyed so much uh, being able to do that alongside of you. And um I'm excited today to get to know more of your leadership journey. So I know that it's been at times a surprising journey for you. Could you share a little bit about what leadership has looked like for you? We moved to Connecticut in 1977 and started attending Valley Community Baptist Church. The found One of the founders of the church and its then uh, church chair came up to me one night after prayer meeting and said, Barbara, I'd like you to consider being on the strategic planning committee. And I looked at Wes Kurt and I burst out laughing. I said, Wes, I'm a stay at home mom. What in the world could I ever contribute? He said, you have some leadership skills. He said, why don't you and your husband, Mark, talk about it and pray about it? Well, my husband agreed with Wes. I had no idea I had leadership skills. Uh, Fast forward. Fast forward. I served in the committee. Fast forward. I'm now back to working full time in the public schools at Farmington High School. After several meetings, the then superintendent came up to me and he said, I'm putting you in charge of this program. He said, because you have obvious leadership skills. I'm astonished again. And he said, not only am I going to mentor you, but I really think you should get your doctorate in leadership and consider administration. 
I did that and I went on to be a central office administrator for about two decades. Now, to bring this story the whole way around, to bring the whole way around, when Tim Ponzani was executive pastor uh, at Valley Church, he called one day and he said, we're doing, we're updating the strategic plan and we'd like you to chair it. So the men in my life may enabled me to see some God-given talents I had that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And that's my journey. Wow. There's a lot, there's a lot that you left out there, which we're going to probably explore as we go through this next uh, part of the conversation. But, uh, you know, I'm sure at many junctures in your journey, you felt a weight of responsibility and perhaps a concern, especially in those early days, that you might not have all the skills needed to do the task before you or eventually to lead really complex organizations. Uh, what have you learned and what should younger leaders, especially those in ministry, think about when they feel that reality that they may not be fully prepared or have every skill that's needed for the task in front of them? You know, I thought about this question uh, in a number of ways. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about leadership in general first. Um, when when you're in a, doctor, a classic doctoral program like UConn's, you have to read everything that's ever written by, about leadership forever and ever and ever. And one of the things that you begin to see is that there are some patterns. It's always about vision. It's always about personal competencies. It's always about organizational structure, human resources. It's always about that. What has happened over time in the leadership liter literature is in, in the good old days when organizations were simple, the leader had to know everything and be everything. As organizations got more complex, it became impossible for one person to know everything, see everything, and do everything. So we went from a command model in leadership to a much more collaborative model. What was really interesting to me in the study of this, and, and this is my way of encouraging people not to feel overwhelmed, is that as this movement occurred in the literature where the leader didn't have to know everything and be everything, uh, Ken Blanchard and, a friend, and one of his colleagues, Hodges, wrote a book called Lead Like Jesus. They said that um, in the modern world, the leader has to be an influencer of people. One has to remember that Jesus did not have positional power. Neither did Paul in reality. He wasn't one of the original dis, um, disciples. And so I think that I would encourage um, our audience to think about the fact that you don't start out having to know everything and be everything. What you need to be is an influencer of other people who have the complementary skills and insights. So that said, I made a list of what I would encourage uh, our audience to think about, unless you want to pose another question. Well, I just wanted to interject that um, your example of Jesus is, is interesting because he did have positional authority ultimately, but he chose to lead through influence. And so I think that's even a more powerful example um, because sometimes we do have positional authority, but I do think the demand of leadership is how are you going to lead not through command, but through influence and collaboration, uh, which is yeah. the way Jesus led. So that's, I just want to point that out as a great, great example. Yeah. But I'd love to, I lo let's work through your list, Barbara. I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. 
Well, I have five points in the in this list. One is about you as a person, or each of you as a person. First of all, please be humble enough to know who you are. Psalm 139 tells us that God made each of us with a, a distinct set of skills, talents, and abilities because he has a purpose for our lives. And it's not only purpose in the church, but it's also purpose in the broader community. So be humble enough to know you, where you are in your spiritual journey. And I'm going to say something that I that comes from the bottom of my heart. If you are not working hard on your spiritual journey to develop a character like Jesus, to become more like Jesus, please don't go into leadership. That You can't lead without character and you cannot lead without the Holy Spirit. The second thing that that I would say is after after you've assessed where you are in your spiritual journey, and it is a journey, I'd like to say at my age, at 78, that that my journey's finished. Not really. The other thing that that I would encourage our audience to think about is please be aware of your strengths and weaknesses in an organization, your strengths and weaknesses in your personality, in your skill set. For example, if if you're in ministry right now and you're doing youth ministry and you have aspirations to move on or even within the ministry, but you don't understand anything about financial statements, learn about financial statements. Learn how to read them and what to, uh, to do with them. Always be humble enough to admit you're wrong and always be humble enough to maintain your integrity, your character. That's my first point. The second one is, okay, if this organization that you're preparing to lead is so complex, how are you going to recruit people with complementary skills, talents, and abilities? Now, it's interesting uh, for me to note that um, researchers like Peter Drucker and Jim Collins have pointed out that churches are some of the most complex organizations to lead. (laughs) Ministry is complex, and that's because of people. People are your greatest asset, and they can be your biggest headache. So I, I, I think if you're going to influence people, you have to be a team builder. And you have to, to be a team builder, you have to get the right people on the right bus in the right seat. And if that sounds familiar to anybody, I stole it from Jim Collins in his uh, book, uh, Good to Great. You have to develop some people smarts in order to do this. Let's think about ministry, regardless of its kind. Most of the time you're dealing either with people on staff or you're dealing with lots and lots of volunteers. So to to be an influencer, to reach out to these people, to come alongside and go on the vision walk and, and the organizational walk with you, you have to know something about them. The census data that's collected every 10 years in this country gives you interesting information. Are the people in your pool of either staff members or volunteers, are are they farmers? Are they skilled tradesmen? Are they executives? Are they mostly male? Are they mostly female? Are they married? What's their educational level? What sports do they like? That's the big picture of your total audience. And 
without that, you really can't begin to understand enough about these people to influence them to come alongside. The other, the other thing that I would encourage folks to do, if part of your education um, did not provide you with a course, coursework on adult human development, please go online or please grab some books and learn about it. We think a development ends when somebody gets to the magic age of 18 or 21. Researchers have told us healthy adults keep developing all through their lives. And we're going to talk a little more about that human development in a little, in a little bit. So I won't expand that much further. But Patrick Lencioni uh, writes a lot about building teams. I recommend you take a look at his work. What's your conscious effort should be as a leader who wants to influence other people to come on board and reach, uh, go for the vision, is you have to build a team of people with complementary skill sets, gifting sets, and you need some people who will honestly look at you and say, you know what, you're wrong. To do that, to do that, you need to develop what I call um, productive listening. Most of the time when you read books and communication is about, you know, commuting, communicating clearly, and I can go on and on. Most of us know all of that. As a matter of fact, you have a pillar in Evergreen about communication. Productive listening is a different communication skill and far more important to somebody who's building a team and influencing people. And that is you have to learn to listen very carefully to what people are saying to you. You have to get inside their heads to find out how they conceptualize things so that you can reach in and pull on a hook to get them to influence them in, in their decisions. Now, I thought this was a Barbara Campbell original. Um, <laughs> the term is, however, I'm reading Tim Keller's biography written by um, yeah. Hansen is the last name. I can't remember his first name. Colin, maybe? Is it? Like yeah, yeah. yeah, right. I was sh shocked to learn that there was nothing in Tim Keller's education personal background at, that could have ever prepared a kid raised in rural areas, a shy, socially awkward person to lead a church in the world's most liberal, cynical, fast-paced city like New York City. What enabled Tim Keller to do that is he listened so carefully to the input, to the questions, to the people surrounding him, to his parishioners, that he learned how they were thinking. And then when he built his sermons or had his interactions, he communicated in a way meaningful to them. So Tim Keller is, is a model. Learn to listen carefully so that you know the touch points where you can influence uh, people. My fourth point is uh, in the area of implementation, and this is the extremely practical one. There is a great tendency in all organizations to look across the road or down the street and say, oh, this, this person or this organization is doing something really great. We're going to call them up and we're going to steal their idea 
and we're going to implement it. Now, first of all, I think you should always, as a leader, steal every good idea you can steal. Thank the people for it, but steal it. But don't steal it and blindly adopt it. Don't steal it at all if the model doesn't match your demographics or the people that you are going to be asking to implement it. Um, Or if you come up with something that is original and creative, remember, it it has to be a match with the organization's vision and with the people that you are asking to implement it. Um, And then please have the courage and humility to monitor it all the time. And I went not halfway through continuously. And this goes back to communication. If one of the people on your team is saying to you, something's just not working, investigate it, find out what's going on. Use data, not perception, to go back and say, is this working? What do we need to change and change it before change it before it sinks itself? The fifth and final point that I want to encourage um, people young in their leadership to do is network. Network among people. Find someone that has made the move that you've moved from whatever ministry position you're in now to the one you want currently. Once you're in a ministry position, always find people in similar situations. So these are not necessarily mentoring relationships. They're more, you know, I'm stewing about a problem that's in front of me. Who in my Rolodex, old term, can I pick up the phone or can I text and say, gee, Andy, you've lived through this. Give me some guidance here. And keep that network ever changing young old male female in in inside ministry inside the uh, religious world and secular folks too so th- those are the the those are the things that i that i have done all along my learning to be a leader and and learning to be a leader is a little bit like the spiritual journey mm-hmm. you're never awesome. quite done Steal all the good ideas you can, but remember you're in the people business. That's great. There's a lot, a lot of gold in there. Um, productive listening. You know, I, I've been in this on serving on the team with Converge Northeast and learning to work on a new team and a year in is kind of when you kind of start to feel like, okay, been working with this team now. Let me, you know, where, where are we going? How can I learn to be a better leader in this space? And uh, I've, I've just had to, even in this season, re- recenter myself a little bit on when I'm listening What's the question underneath the question? Like there, there's the conversation that's happening and then there's the why, why am I being asked that question? And is this a pattern? Is there something that I need to be more aware of in my own leadership? So that, that's just one thing that um, it's been a focal point for, for me in this season. When I On the networking side with listening, a little cue that I use when I go, if I'm sharing a meal with somebody is I, I try to observe, um, is my plate empty before theirs? <laughs> That's a sign. Um, if I'm doing a good job of it, especially if it's a new person that I'm meeting with, I'm building a networking relationship with a new pastor or getting to know someone in, uh, I actually use that as a cue for myself to say, like, if I'm asking good questions and I'm listening well, then I should finish my food before they finish theirs. Like that's actually a good, a good sign. Not that I rushed through it, but a well, little. You know, you, you, you 
you made me think about something. When Tim asked me to be in the Converged Northeast uh, board, I said, why? You know, because isn't it mostly made up of pastors? So I have spent the, the last four years listening productively to understand how people in ministry think about their work. And it has been fascinating to me because even vocabulary, phrasing, how you put something together is so very different from the educational realm where I came from. So productive listening is probably one of the top skills a person needs to be successful. Yeah, I think that's a great one. I I also, I was thinking when you were talking about implementation and the uh, proclivity that we have to just import a good idea from another organization. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many churches I interact with now in New England that their their pastor twenty years ago went to a purpose driven church conference, and then yes. and then they came back and they were the next Sunday they were wearing a Hawaiian t shirt, you know, in the New England pulpit. And you know, the truth, like any any sort of uh, model or framework, like the you know purpose driven church, Rick Warren, there's there is sap that you can boil out of that that you can use in your church. But if you just if you don't do the listening part or thinking and seeing what's underneath it and just try to implement it, you know, wear the Hawaiian T-shirt and try to be Rick Warren, that's not really uh, effective leadership. So there's a researcher. There's a researcher whose name will escape me right now, who who says that when you are looking at best practice or something that's really working, what you should do is pull that thread in and then pull threads in from other things that are working. And one of the jobs of the leader is to braid them together so that it works. And I like that concept of braiding together good ideas. That's a great, great language uh, to mention for sure. So you, you actually started to touch on this too. Like as you joined the board of overseers with Converge, the different context of ministry, which you're not, it's not foreign to you in terms of being a part of the church and leading in the church, but your primary domain of your professional leadership was in the marketplace or in the civic arena. Uh, we're leading in the school system, um, volunteering in the church space. You know, what can churches learn especially when it comes to the formation of adults. You already tapped on this a little bit, the the way that adults are formed. What can we learn? Here's what, oh, here's what I would encourage everybody to do. There's somebody by the name of Malcolm Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, who writes a lot uh, on, on the internet uh, about ad- adult development. Obviously, there are lots of books written about that. But I think it kind of boils down to... Um, to get a job done, regardless of what ministry you're, you're leading or a program you're leading, is you have to do it through either staff or volunteers. And in order to influence them to come on board and be productive, you have to know what's going on in their heads. Now, I'm going to give you a synopsis. This is a, a real overview. It's not detailed at all. First of all, Think about this. Adults have negotiated formal education. They've lived longer than than children, so they have life experiences that, and they've done this all pretty much independently. Adults do this independently. So what happens is they are autonomous learners who are self-directed. They know how to learn and they know they can tell you what they 
know and what they don't know. And they like to direct their learning because they don't want to spend any time. If I already know how to do this, please don't show me how to do it. I, you know, I don't have the time for that. Because their life roles are so complex, adults are time pressured individuals. So when you invite them to join you in ministry, be clear about the expectations. Because if you're not clear, you're probably going to get a no, or you're not going to get a productive team um, member. Now, and this is especially true. This is especially true from Gen X on in generational cohorts. And I think it's healthy because these people are saying, I want to have life balance. And you, you know, the scriptures talk about that kind of balance. These people have life balance. And so if you're going to reach in, you have to touch something in them, a passion, a gift, something so that they will consider the idea that you're putting in front of them. Now understand, and this is another characteristic of adult learners, that begins for them cognitively, a process that I call the cost-benefit analysis. They're saying, okay, Andy's invited me to join him in youth ministry. Okay, of what benefit can I be? And of what benefit can I be to the program? But I have to weigh that about, I only have 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. Is that benefit, how does that benefit compare to spending more time with my wife or spending more time with my children? Or I just got a promotion and I have no idea whether I'm going from a 40 hour week to a 60 hour week. That happens, that happens automatically for adults. So don't, so understand that they are making a very good analysis for themselves and you want them to do that. So even when they say no to you, understand it's probably a good no because they've weighed the benefit, the cost benefit analysis. Never embarrass an adult by putting them in, in a learning situation where they fail. Adults do not like to fail. They see themselves as competent and they are competent. Never put them into a situation where they can't be successful. You can, if, if that does occur, come alongside them and say, golly, I'm sorry, I didn't prepare you for the fact that fifth grade boys in a Sunday school class can really be a challenge. How about I let you watch Mary Smith down the hall? She's consummate at doing that. So don't ever embarrass them by, by letting them fail. Learn to read whether the person you are inviting to your team is a strategic thinker or a detail thinker. If you're planning ministry uh, for the next two years, you want somebody who can think big picture and who can see all the bumps along the way without getting down in the weeds. If you're planning the Sunday school picnic, you want somebody who's detail oriented. So look at the task you're asking the adult to do. And if don't put uh, a detail person on a strategic planning committee and don't put a strategic person uh, in charge of deciding what color the paper plates and napkins should be for the Sunday school paper. You'll make them crazy. 
Also make the commitment, let them know that you are interested in moving them along on their role. People will people are motivated when they feel you care enough about them to invest in them. Be aware that in all of this, asking them to buy into the ministry, come on board to the team, be developed, that people sit on a continuum of tolerance of change. Some people can make change very easily and will do it for the adventure. And some just stall at, at the idea of change and need to be moved along a little, a little more gently, if at all. The other thing that I think I want to challenge your ministry leaders to think about. Have you ever thought of your supervisor, your boss, as an adult learner? Have you ever thought about a ministry colleague as an adult learner? Because when you think about that, them that way, you now have insight into influencing how they see your program, whether they should get on board. Um, I think his first name is Clay Scroggins, who's Andy Stanley's second in command, wrote a whole book about leading when you're not in charge. And it's, it's because he's, he sees not only his role as, as helping the church that Andy uh, pastors be successful, but he also sees him as another human being. So I think if if you want to be more effective in, in your role in your current ministry and you want to begin building credibility and value to your boss or to an elder or whoever whoever your support or your bosses are, think about them as adult learners. Hmm. That is great. Um, and I'd say even if you are in the lead role, you're bored. Um, think of them that way. Like, how are you? Uh, I mentioned even for myself when I was on the board of overseers, like I part of the motivation for being a part of that community was for formation, you know, and so we can we can see that as a really I, you, you make me think of um, the, the 360 leader, the, the classic yes. Maxwell book as well, the leading up and leading and, you know, which is uh, we actually used to lead our younger staff through that work uh, in my former ministry, just to help people understand no matter where you are on an organizational chart, you are surrounded, as you kind of said in this framework, by adult learners, you know, you're adult, other people who are on the journey of leadership and formation in Christ. And um, I also love um, one of the most important things as we're building teams in the church is to remember that we're not just trying to get people to help us do our program, but we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. And that applies to those who are serving. And, you know, the paradigm that I always encourage people to remember is that every community you build is, should be a discipleship community. It should be a formation community. And it's hard. I, you know, one of the church size dynamics things that we face is that um, I remember when I came into our church as the youth director, the previous leader had done all of the teaching and basically the, the bar for the leaders was very low. And I wanted to shift it to more of a team-based model. And I had to go to my overseers and be like, I'm going to go to fewer soccer games because I want to spend more time with my leaders, but here's why 
I'm doing that and, and sort of almost the uh, the Daniel approach with the uh, the diet where I had to be like let me t- let me test this out give me some time to, to prove that the, what I'm doing is is effective and you can give me feedback on that and um, we were able to see great fruit from that transition um, and how you define success is a big deal there too so yeah you always have a boss I mean <laughs> always have, I mean you know you you pointed out that the senior pastor has the elder board you know. I could be superintendent of schools. I still had the, the board of education to deal with. And, and let's let's think about, to your point about developing people on their spiritual walk, regardless of where you are in ministry leadership, our ultimate boss is our Lord. And he has expectations for us about bringing people along the way. That's, that's why influencing is so important, getting them to move along. Hmm. Well, very, very well said. I want to talk about input sources. And you are someone who I know is well-read and widely read. And you've already listed off uh, a bunch of names, many that I knew, some that I wrote down because they're new to me. Um, But as you're speaking to leaders, many of them may be in their first or just starting their second decade of ministry. And um, they may have be in a formal education or maybe have finished their seminary education. But as they kind of foster uh, a diet of learning, what would you give them for advice? Let me start by by expressing a, a puzzle that I once expressed to Tim Panzani when he was the executive pastor at Valley. I, I'm puzzled by a perception in in the church that writers and ideas from the secular world do not apply in in the church world. As a matter of fact, I was somewhat stunned to find out that seminaries do not have courses in human development or organizational development. It blew me away. Just ask Tim my reaction. Uh, So I want to start by saying, if, if you as a young leader have that dichotomy in your mind, I hope what I'm about to say will confuse, will influence you to think more broadly. Now, I am widely read, so let me give you that history. I, I, I think I was born curious. More than one family member and friend has told me I ask too many questions because I'm just curious. Um, so how, how, if, you're not, if you're not born curious, how do you go about making certain that you're widely read enough so that you can communicate well? with with your team. I have two really simple strategies. Obviously you can build it into your your educational program, but if if that's not where you're headed right now, there are two things that you could do. Actually two places where you can do one thing. Periodically make a visit to your pub, local public library or your local bookstore and go to the new materials selection and just scan what what is what are writers and experts writing about um, in, in the areas of human development, in the areas of leadership. Just go and just browse and, and get curious enough to pick up a book or a magazine um, that you've never thought about. Look, look, look at the magazine and look at the topics or look at the chapters in the book. If it's an area you want to explore, then it's, it's easy enough to take it home and, and scan read it. Um, 
it might be important enough to purchase. So I think making that a routine habit. I think the other thing is know your closely held beliefs, ideas, and opinions enough to read the other side or people on the continuum to the other side. I sometimes, I, I am a moderate politically, but I force myself to read, you know, on the extreme right and the extreme left, because there again, I'm not looking to change my views, although that could happen. What I'm looking for is if I'm going to put people on the team who have really strong views on a person, uh, on a particular subject, what I want to do is know enough about it so that the views don't dictate what we're going to do in planning or in carrying it out. The other thing I think that um, I would recommend that you do is um, read biographies. If you if you like to read, read biographies. Um, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin. I, I'm, yeah, that's the way her name goes. I, I switch her middle name and her last name. Wrote uh, a book, a, a biography about Abraham Lincoln. His cabinet was a team of rivals. There's actually been a movie made of that. The book is much better. Um, there, there is David McCullough's his, um, biography of Truman. I'll warn you, it's over a thousand pages. But what's interesting is Harry Truman wasn't the brightest pencil in the box and had the least personal experiences to make him president of the United States. But he surrounded himself with very wise people. I mean, I could go on and on. I recommend uh, Hansen's biography of, of Tim Keller. Read biographies of people who lead complex organizations and have done it well. Um, the other thing I would do is look, start reading formal research. Now, I know everybody in the audience just said, okay, it's time to end the podcast. <laughs> I'm not saying start reading journals that you borrow from the university. Uh, the gold standard for research uh, is readily accessible on the internet. It's the Pew Research Center. Pew, the quality of Pew's research is just, it's just golden. Maybe Gallup. But the interesting thing about Pew is they deal with culture. They publish only the best research and culture. They do only the best. They do a lot on American religion. And so just visit the site every once in a while. And when something ca captures your, your fancy, take the time to read it. That said, um, I want to I give two cautions. There's a lot of really bad research out there. And if you've never had a course in statistics and research design, either get the dummies book or look at some of the criteria on, on website because bad research gives you bad conclusions. And if you implement bad conclusions, you're going to end up in failure. So I would recommend that, that you be very careful about um, research, especially survey research. You know, churches love to do surveys. We're going to do surveys about this. When you're a trained researcher, 
The hardest research to design is survey research because it's about language. It's about a whole bunch of things. So if you're going to read survey research, make certain it's high end where the reliability and validity of, of the research is really, really good. Um, I was trying to think of a practical example of where research plan it made a difference in church planning. And I thought of this one a couple of years ago before Tim uh, left Valley to go to Converge Northeast, we updated the data behind the strategic plan that Valley had written. And one of the, one of the data points was the fact that the region that Valley serves was going to have a population transition. It had formerly been populated by people at the high end, at the near end of their careers. It was an older demographic. The tra transition was that the demographic was going to get younger and that these people would be mid-income earners because of where they were in life. So the recommendation to elders is that with that transition coming, it would have an impact on Valley's budgeting because 10% of a big pot of money is more money than 10% of a smaller amount of money. So for ministry planning, that, you know, that is a very important data point. And we got that from census data and from, we had in the congregation, some people who were in the financial industry. So we stole a lot of their research. That's why looking at solid data enables you to plan well into the future and make informed decisions about, um, about um, things. The other, th the other caution I would have is um, just like in every field, leadership literature and leadership information sources, social media, wherever they are, have giants, and then they have the wannabes, and then the snake oil salespeople. <laughs> so, especially, especially in the social media area, I'm as a trained researcher at the end of a, a career in leadership, I'm a little concerned about the wannabes and how I done it goods and the snake oil salesmen that are readily available on social media. There are giants, Drucker, Peters, Blanchard, Cloud, Senge, Lencioni. There are giants in the field. Explore them and then listen carefully because there are, I'm not saying everybody on social media is is questionable. But be careful that you always take what they're telling you back to one of the giants in leadership or back to your data set. Does this make sense? Because otherwise you, you're going to get led down a path. So, you know, go to the public library, read, listen widely and broadly and steal ideas. Like Andy, what, what's, what's the best book you've read recently on? Yeah, it's great. Uh, you, you hit on a lot, a lot of things there that, that spark in, in my mind and, uh, just, you know, super valuable, uh, input there. I think, um, that's, that is my wiring. I, I learned from you, even in our pre-conversation, a few things like I've subscribed to the Harvard business review based on our conversation and it's not a very expensive subscription to have. I've been reading a lot of their articles in, in the seminary program I'm in, 
Um, and I was like, well, I should just have a subscription because that would be one more thing to be able to make sure that my diet is, I, I like listening to things that are adjacent. Like one of my, uh, in the podcast world, which I know has, again, it's a jungle, but I listen to a podcast that's all about, um, uh, Supreme court law and, oh. and it's really fascinating to me because it's not my area of specialty. I'm learning the language of it. Again, similar to what you said about coming into a ministry context, it's a whole different vernacular, but there are things in there that just it's it keeps me intellectually engaged in a way like to th- not just to think about culture but also to think about the leadership lessons in those spaces you know some of the most brilliant thinkers in our culture are in that that arena yeah. yes so. i've read i've read scalia i have read um ginsburg you know because the supreme court fascinates me too it just is for me a great another world of thinking about when you have to split Solomon's baby, yes, <laughs> that's what judges do all of the time. And you can learn some decision-making skills by examining that. So yeah, I, I love it. I, I love, I love when they report the Supreme Court decisions. Um, you know, I because I'm always okay. How did they get to that conclusion? Yeah. And I, I also think that a lot of these things, like we need to know, uh, this came up on another podcast I did recently about communication, but um, we need to know the the water that our people are swimming in, the culture and the conversation. The people in the pew, they are reading broadly. They are reading the other side. They're not reading just the next John Piper book that came out. And so these are things that help us, similar to Paul uh, when he was in Athens to be able to to say like, let me speak, let me see the gods. I mean, that's again, a similar thing that Keller has done, the cultural anthropology, and then be able to draw out the gospel realities from culture and still, you know, cut with the truth of scripture uh, with that two-edged sword. But to, you have to know what you're, like you said, you have to know what you're dividing. Um, and so I think that's just a really, really important thing. An- another couple of things too, is like, just, I, I, navigating the internet world, you mentioned social media, but like, I think there's a whole class that needs to happen in seminary or school about how to filter information now, because information is so um, everywhere and people have the agendas are for clicks and things like that. And so sometimes you'll find an article online and really what you want to do, again, there's just a great report that came out about teen anxiety. Don't just read the, the Buzzfeed article, click through and read the CDC report and the data behind it and go into the deeper information about it. Uh, because like you said, with research, like there are some assumptions right now, like Gen Z and Gen Alpha is a big conversation in the church right now. And it is a puzzle generationally. Those generation cohorts are an interesting thing. But there is actually a lot of research right now that the spiritual appetite of Gen Alpha and, and Gen Z is on the rise like they're actually more open and that there's data and research to back that up. And sometimes I hear pastors even say like, ah, we're, you know, we're losing a generation of the church and and there's measures of truth in that, but we, the research will show us the opportunity that we have before us as well. So anyway, that's my little, uh, I love love that research too, because the opportunity is there. It, I think the challenge for all of us is how how do we influence them? How do we productively listen to know how to, to communicate with them? The other point that you you um, I want to comment that you made is when when you're reading something like that, that's when your network comes in very handy. You, yes. you call up somebody and you say, hey, Andy, I'm reading this article on XYZ. Have you read it? Yeah, I've read it. What are the questions? You know, bouncing 
the ideas off one another. And here is another little hint to your folks in the audience. Nothing stumps people in, in the secular world more than an evangelical Christian who can carry on a, a very productive discussion on homosexuality. They are stunned because they think the first thing you're going to say is it's a sin and create judgment. They're always shocked when you can enter the discussion and finally make your point, but it allows you to influence people and plant seeds. Mm. Absolutely. And that's, a, you know, again, full circle, this is the example of Christ and the way that he interacted with, he had different approaches for different people. Obviously he had the gift of omniscience. We do not have that <laughs> gift. Do <laughs> his networking. And yeah, exactly. Let's do the best we can with what we have, I guess, is the stewardship of, of, of the conversation. So uh, I want to wrap up our time here. This has been an amazing conversation, but uh, one of the things that I loved, um, in talking to you, it's just, uh, you mentioned this already, but the stewardship of people's time is such an important reality and we need to increase our intention. And sometimes, sometimes church meetings are the worst meetings. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, pastors are all heart and not necessarily as much intention. And so this is going to be a very pragmatic thing, but when it comes to whether it's a Bible study or it's the strategic planning meeting or the elder meeting, what advice would you give to leaders in terms of running effective meetings, gathering points? Well, lest your audience, our audience thinks that this is just an evangelical Christian problem with time wasted in, in meetings. I am fortunate enough in my network to have women and men of all of the major faiths. And interestingly enough, as busy as these leaders are, they are all involved in their various faith organizations because it's it's a part of their life they value. When we are chatting and, you know, we go out to dinner and stuff, it always comes up, oh, I have a synagogue meeting tonight and it's going to be unproductive. So it's not just evangelical, evangelical Christians at all. And I, and for the purposes of my comments, I want to separate Bible studies where you're caring for people's souls in their lives from what I'm going to call organizational meetings. I think Bible studies are a whole other topic because the facilitation skills and what you expect should is, is somewhat different. So I'm going to focus on the meetings that we all know and love. You know, the, you're going to pull together the youth ministry team or you're going to pull together the elders. How do you make a meeting productive? Because people, after a while, will say, I don't have time to sit in unproductive meetings. So you'll get non-attendance or you'll get no to being part of the, the team. Whatever, whatever the task is that the group has been assigned, backward plan from the, from the beginning of the task to the timeline for reporting, backward plan, how many meetings do you think this is going to take? And then schedule those meetings based on your participants' availability once and, and then pick, you know, get them the dates ahead of time. When you build the agenda for each of these meetings, keep the agenda items between five and seven. If you have to go beyond that, you probably need two meetings. I once 
saw an agenda for a ministry team that had 50 items on it. If I had gotten that agenda ahead of time and been on that team, I probably would have said, you know, you can't have five hours of my evening. Um, on the agenda, make it very clear whether the item on the agenda is information, whether it needs input, or whether it's a decision thing. So the people are clear when they re read the agenda. Get the agenda and accompanying materials out to people a week ahead of time. At the very most, only five days ahead of time, but at least a week of time, because these are busy people. If your expectation is that they come to the meeting fully prepared, you have to get the information to them so that they have time to prepare it. Be clear about your expectations uh, for, for, the, for the meeting. Uh, I always, if you serve in a Barbara Campbell-led team or committee, meetings start and end on time, promptly. If it's 8.30 and we haven't gotten to the seventh item, we'll move it to the next. You know, start and end on time. Ex make it clear to your participants that you expect them to arrive in time and be fully prepared. Um, if it's an evening meeting, try not to have it go much beyond an hour and a half, two hours. Think about it. You've been in ministry all day. They've been at work all day. They probably stopped at home if they had a chance. Some issue came up in the family and they're sitting. Keep it focused. Um, if you don't already have a full set of facilitation skills, take a course, look online, because believe me, no matter what group you're you're leading through a meeting, you're going to have one participant who will want to slow down the agenda or sabotage the agenda. Maybe not 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 for the sake of sabotaging, mm -hmm. but maybe just because they don't understand what's going on here. When you put the agenda together, if you know that item three is going to be a problem for Andy. Call Andy before and say, hey, Andy, have you looked at the third item? And Andy goes, yeah, and I'm really, I either don't understand or I'm really upset. Have some pre-meeting conversations. Not to discourage Andy from participating in the meeting. Only to allay some of his concerns that the rest of the committee doesn't have to worry about. Um, so those are the kinds of facilitation skills that, that can keep a meeting um, moving. Uh, I've talked about a pre-meeting one about sending out the agenda and any accompany materials. Um, also make it clear to the people on your team or your committee that if they have a question, I don't understand this financial statement, have them call you ahead of time or text you ahead of time because they will be embarrassed and it will waste time if you have to explain to them how to read that financial statement or why in the world did you send us the article written by everybody knows that guy is a true jerk you know um so all of these off meeting behaviors make make the meeting run more successfully um and if you really want to make your team happy don't have a meeting for the sake of having a meeting. If, if 
If the discipleship team meeting is the first Tuesday of every month and there's nothing really on the cancel the meeting, your participants will think you walk across the water without thinking. Uh, and then what I always I always do this, even when I moderate a poll, I'm, I'm, I'm an, a deputy registrar of voters and I'm a poll moderator at the end of the effort, I write each participant a note on good stationery mailed to them, thanking them for their efforts, their contributions, or if somebody does something that's just truly amazing, I will do the same thing. Remember, all of us are looking for approval and the people who are working hard with you that you are influencing and who are influencing you deserve recognition for their hard work. So start and end on time, be clear in your expectations, keep the agenda short and use pre-meeting and post-meeting. Oh, the other thing, I almost forgot to say this. The other thing that I do, I mean, some committees constitutionally have to have minutes like the CNE board members that we attend. Well, if it's the discipleship team here at Valley, we don't need to keep minutes. But what I do is the agenda, which I generate in word i send electronically after the meeting within a day or two item three was an input item these are our three inputs in in like one sentence each the decision we made on item four is this one sentence and at the very end at the very end i say next time andy's Andy's assignment is to check with the missions committee. Doris's assignment is to check with the senior pastor's office so that everybody is clear. They can look at it the next day or the day after and say, okay, that is what we decided. And this is my job for the next time. That's all, all really good, uh, advice. And I think, you know, just be self-reflective too. I think like you, you kind of talked about the after meeting, how did, how did the meeting go? Talk to your team. You know, like you said, these are journeys that we're on. And I think when we lack intentionality and we don't get self-reflective on these things, that's when we get into bad, bad patterns and practices. And if we do that over the course of time, then we're going to have a hard time leading. So uh, we've all run bad meetings or been a part of bad meetings. That's not the, uh, but these are great tips to help us make sure that we're producing health for people. So Barbara, this has been a masterclass. I hope that people go back and listen. I know I'm going to listen to some of these things again and again. Um, I so appreciate you and thank you for taking the time today to share some of the things that you've learned with our audience. Well, thank you for inviting me, Andy. And I'd like to hear from you somewhere down the road, you know, what the what the feedback was, because I'm all, even though I'm not leading anything too big anymore, I still like the input. I don't know that that's true. You've been hard to schedule with because you have your hands in so many things. So I hope that I get to live that way at the stage of life that you're at as well. So thanks so much again. Thank you, Andy. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Evergreen Way podcast. On behalf of our entire team at Converge Northeast, it is a privilege to bring you these conversations to help you be a healthy leader for the long haul. We would love to connect with you. Find us on Instagram at Converge Northeast and send us a message. That's an easy way to connect with us. Or you can send me an email directly, Andy, at ConvergeNortheast.org. We'd love to know what you think of the podcast, ideas you might have, or even suggestions for potential guests in the future. 
Please remember to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you would, do us the favor, leave us a review. Let us know what you think and help other people discover this resource. Until next time, this is Andy Needham with Converge Northeast. Thanks so much for tuning in.